MoneyWeb, be a better investor podcast, picking the brains of professional investors on their investment strategies, successes, and mistakes. Your host, Rake Fanica. Welcome to this week's edition of the Be A Better Investor podcast. My name is Raik van Niekerk, and in this podcast series, I speak to leading investors and business leaders about their investments. And we also peek into their own personal investment portfolios and philosophies. We try to get a sense of how they analyze investment opportunities, what shares and assets they invest in, and whether they have more hits than misses. The idea is to find a few golden nuggets of wisdom to help amateur retail investors to become better investors. My guest today is Narina Fisser. Now, she is pretty well known on various of MoneyWeb's platforms. She's currently a director at ETFSA and her official title is she's an ETF strategist and advisor. ETFSA, of course, is a financial services provider which only invests in exchange traded products. She has a very long CV. She is the chairperson of the Association of Savings and Investments or ASISA's ETF Standing Committee and she's a member of the JSE Issuer Regulation Advisory Committee. She holds a BSc degree in Mathematical Statistics and Applied Mathematics from the University of Stellenbosch. She also holds an MBA specializing in finance from the same university and she is a CFA charter holder. Before joining ETFSA in 2015, she was the head of Beta Solutions and ETFs at NetBank Capital. Narina, that is a mouthful, um, but let's start <laughs> with your background. Where did you grow up and when did you decide you wanted a career in the management of investments? <laughs> Thank you, Ray. Thank you for that introduction. But my background, I grew up in um, what is now known as Centurion. It was Verwurtburg at the time. My parents moved into the house, uh, I think it was 10 days before I was born. So for um, for 36 years, that was my parental home, was in Centurion. Um, I went to school in Pretoria and so very much born and bred what is now, I guess, Gauteng. And yet I always knew myself to be a, um, shall I start with a rugby analogy of a Western Province supporter or a Capetonian. Both my mom and dad hailed from the Cape and so most of our extended family was down in the Cape um, and I used to joke to say that I'm a Capetonian, it's not my fault I wasn't born there and hence uh, I, I guess there, it wasn't even a, a conscious decision for me, I just always knew that I would want to go to the University of Stellenbosch and yes, as you mentioned um, not only did I do my BSc degree, my undergrad in, in maths and stats, but there was absolutely Absolutely no investment, no BCom, no accounting, no economics, none of the academic background, which I think one would probably think is a prerequisite for a career in finance or in investments. I had none of that as part of my undergrad um, studies. And in fact, I was the ripe age of 30 before I got my first in 
introduction into the world of finance and investments. It was a new world that opened up for me. It was love at first sight. And it was only after I started working in the industry that I then embarked on first my MBA qualification, where I did quite a lot of of, um, finance and investment, and then ultimately my my CFA qualification, the Chartered Financial Analyst. So I guess I'm what you would call a a late starter, um, but happy to say that I have now been much longer in this industry than I was in my industry prior to the age of 30. In Verwurberg or Centurion, as you've said earlier, in the household, did you, you and your parents, did you talk often about investments? Was it a typical conversational theme around the Not Sunday lunch table? Not at all. It was never a topic of conversation. I had very little knowledge of how my parents managed their finances. Um, I don't even know whether they had any investments. I was aware of, you know, those days it would be things like policies, especially insurance policies was a lot more common. I think my first awareness of this was when my mom started working um, much later in her life again um, after um, I'm the youngest of, of six children. And, and when I sort of reached the teenage stage, my mom started working half day. And I remember at the time she worked for, for, a, for a state institution. And there was an opportunity at the time for um, employees of state institutions to buy back their pension and buy it back to the age of 16. Listen, in hindsight, you look at this and you think, but that was absolutely a terrible thing that they allowed to do because effectively you could, you could pay the amount amount of money that would have been your contributions. Now, in my mom's case, you know, that was probably about, I don't know, 30 years worth of contributions that they calculated back, make that contribution, and suddenly you were had a much bigger pension fund that you would have had otherwise. So from, from the fund perspective, for me, and, you know, with today's knowledge that I have of, of the industry, um, I think it's quite horrifying. From my parents' perspective, I'm infinitely grateful because it ended up being effective their only pension that they had in their old age. So I'm extremely grateful that they were able to do it, even though in principle, I certainly can't agree with that from an investment perspective. But no, never conversations around money. It was fairly traditional in the sense of my, you know, my dad managed all the finances, partly because he was very mathematically inclined. I certainly got my love for numbers from my mom, from my dad. My mom was the word person. So yes, my dad managed all the finances and um, it was just never really a topic for for conversation. We were taught to to work hard. The expectation was sort of more a traditional idea of get a job, get the pension, you know, work until Mm. it's time to retire and that should be your life. And of course, we now know nowadays that certainly is I think probably more the exception than it is the rule. But when did you take your own money for the very first time and made an investment and what was it? <laughs> so I'm not sure that one can call this an investment. So when I started working fresh out of varsity, uh, 22 years old, um, I was sold one of those horrible, terrible insurance-based policies. Um, I can now look back on it and, and see, oh, okay, that was some sort of uh, retirement annuity policy of some sort. But probably the most important aspect of that was that it incorporated life insurance. And so here I was, all of 22 years old, with not a dependent in sight, no debt, and yet the most important thing that was sold to me was 
insurance, life insurance. It was it was one of those combined things also. So I had a monthly premium that I paid, of which a very small portion went into the retirement annuity, and the bulk of this went into the premium for the life insurance. Of course, I knew absolutely nothing about this. It was only many years later that I was able, with much clearer understanding and insight, to look at this and say, wow, that really, really was a very bad <laughs> That's like, I can't even call it an investment, a a money decision, I guess. And yeah, it's terrible for me to think that to this day, I still own one of those policies, which will come to maturity next year. I've Are you done still the calculation. I am still paying it. And I made these, I did these sums very carefully and realized that what I was going to lose because of the terms and conditions that was part and parcel of this policy 35 odd years ago, I would lose more than what the, because now it's really about sort of the, the, the cost differential for me. And, and very begrudgingly, every month I see that debit order go off my account and I count the sleeps until next year when it finally matures and I can finally cut that cord and say, enough, enough. Yeah, those policies were designed to earn commissions for the financial advisors and Indeed. for the insurance companies uh, at, at last. Uh, well, at least that has changed significantly um, yes. in recent times, so it's a lot more transparent. Mm. But you... Yeah are now at ETFSA. You focus predominantly on exchange-traded products and mm. they are seen as passive investments. You know, when young people, mm. uh, well, I'm young and I believe passive investments are not aggressive enough. If I have a more aggressive strategy, <laughs> I will be a, ro- a lot richer when I retire one day. But when did you realize that this is your investment philosophy to invest in these exchange traded products or, you know, passive investments? Uh, When did you realize that is the way to go? So for me, the Damascus moment came in 2007. It was at a CFA conference where a lady by the name of Deborah Fur, who's really known as probably one of the, the, the biggest gurus globally in exchange-traded funds, as it was just at the time, where she presented at this conference and where, even though I knew theoretically and practically what an ETF was, remember in 2007, we had already had ETF, Satrix 40 had been listed for seven years by then, we had New Gold, we had a couple of other Satrix products, we had those old DBX tracker, the global ETFs already. They are, of course, now with Signia. So so we had several of these available in South Africa, and I knew what they were and how they worked and so on. But I didn't quite get it. And what I mean when I say I get it, I'm, I'm really a little bit allergic to this term passive investment because it evokes this emotion of, as you say, oh, this is not active enough or this is not, this is not aggressive enough. Or, you know, how can something where you do nothing be good for you? And it was really in her talk at that conference where the benefit of the instrument, the fact that you are dealing here with an investment product that is listed on a stock exchange, that's point number one. It's about the ET part of it, the exchange traded, long before it is about the index tracking part of it. So the ET part of it was the first sort of level of understanding for me. But the second one came in terms of the transparency and the consistency that you get from following an index is that when it comes to planning for my investment, 
investments, the transparency and the consistency of exactly what I'm invested in gives me infinite more insight and control over my very active choice of which of these exchange-traded products I would use either in my own investment portfolios or nowadays in my client investment portfolios as well. And so the idea of passive, I think, is born from almost the original um, index tracker products that one got, which really was just very broad-based equity market indices. So in South Africa, it would be your top 40 index, or in the US, the S&P 500, or maybe globally, the MSCI world. These were really just the first generation of index tracking products where it was very much about just the very low cost access to the broad overall market. But that was very much sort of the 1980s, 1990s. And this industry has evolved so significantly from that time, where not only do the format and the, and the makeup of these indices nowadays cover a vast range of investment strategies and exposures and geographical exposures, a, a very, very broad range of investment strategies. But very importantly, also, it gives the investor access to investment opportunities via his local stock exchange, which was not previously um, available. So let's just explore that a little bit. When I think of the JSE, typically one would think, oh, that is where I buy South African listed shares. That's where I buy South African companies. That's the only thing I can buy there. But of course, you and I know that you can buy a lot more, transact in a lot more on the JSE than just South African companies. And exchange-traded products, when they're underlying investments, give you um, exposure to things like bonds or property companies or, very importantly in our case, global investments. The JSE now effectively becomes really my, I almost want to call it my shop, the place where I go to buy my investment products. For many people in South Africa, their main point of entry into investments would be via a LISP platform, a linked investment services provider platform. The JSE is effectively just a LISP, but it is infinitely better regulated and, and administered than a LISP platform. And so if I think of the JSE as the place where I go to buy different investments um, and, and investment products, you see why the value of exchange-traded products transcends way beyond yeah. those mm. old-fashioned, traditional, big, broad sort of equity indices that we had. But you are also, of course, saving for your retirement one day. Yes. Are you only invested in exchange-traded products or are there other asset classes and investments also in the portfolio? So I am exclusively invested in exchange-traded products. When we talk about listed investments, that is exclusively all that I have across my retirement savings, across my post-retirement savings, because I am over the age of 55, so I already have a living annuity as well. It's in my tax-free investment is invested in exchange-traded products. So the only other assets in 
investment type assets that I own beyond that is physical property and some cryptocurrency also, which of course currently is not yet listed and regulated to the same extent. I wouldn't take you for a crypto but, girl. Hey, you don't don't judge a book by its cover. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> so so, but from a, um, a sort of a traditional investment perspective, yes, the I have the full spectrum of pre-retirement, post-retirement, um, tax-free, and discretionary investment. And within each of those accounts, the underlying investments are exclusively exchange-traded products. Oh, that's putting your money where your mouth is, um, absolutely. But <laughs> and it's been like that for many, many years. I have not owned an individual share for more than a decade. <laughs> what would your advice be for a young person, unless the finer young person, say under 30, who's starting mm. a job? The um, what, what would your advice be maybe to yourself when you were still 25, mm. 26? What would you have done differently knowing what you know today? So I think my very first bit of advice, fortunately, I did do that. And I'm very grateful that I did that. But probably the most important bit of advice for a young person is to always live within your means. Don't spend more than you earn. And it sounds very glib. And I think when, when uh, you know, if, you, if your expenses for whatever reasons are relatively high, it seems like a challenge. There's also, of course, the allure of easy credit. And especially when you are well-educated, a professional person, oh, the banks and the financial institutions just love throwing credit your way. And it makes you feel great because as a relatively young person, you know, you suddenly are able to now go and buy all these things. And that probably is the biggest mistake that one can make. Is, and I'm not talking about long-term assets, maybe such as a house property or even a car, where to some extent one might need to do some financing, although even they please please, please don't get involved in balloon payments. Worst thing ever, but maybe other than life insurance for a 22-year-old with no dependents. <laughs> but I, I think that's that for me is point number one. Ensure that your living expenses are less than your income that you earn. And, and the bigger the gap you can have there, the better, because the difference between what you earn and what you spend is what goes into savings and But from an investment perspective? So that's where the second, now now you know where your contributions or your uh, from savings and investments are going to come from. And there I strongly recommend that one finds a balance between what I call saving, which is really money that you are putting away with a specific intent to use it in the relatively near future. With that, I mean expenses that you would have beyond your normal month-to-month living expenses. So that might be things like the deposit on a house or, you know, even being able to buy a car cash, for example. Or maybe it is partly the, the school fees that you want to pay or or it's your travel that you want to do or it's buying furniture or whatever the case might be. So that's money that you intend to spend. And that type of saving should almost exclusively be in interest-bearing investments. Money market, cash, you're just going to earn interest on that because the most important thing for that type of money is ensuring that the capital is there when you need it. If I put 100 rand in, I want 100 rand in a month's time or a year's time when I need to buy or pay for the thing that I've got to. But equally important is then the investment money, which is money 
that I never intend to spend. My investments are really the seeds of fruit trees. I'm planting seeds to grow trees that will ultimately bear fruit, and I will later in my life live off the fruit of the fruit trees that I planted. And so my intention with investments is exactly that, long-term and money that I will never use from the perspective, I'm not going to chop down the tree. It's no good planting a fruit tree and then chopping it down and using it for firewood. I want that tree to bear fruit so that I can enjoy the fruit into perpetuity. So I think it's incredibly important as a young person that one finds the right balance between ensuring that you can live today and ensuring that you can live not tomorrow, but long term. And I hate to sort of say plan for retirement or think about retirement. I rather want to use the term of planning for the day when you when your income requirements will be covered by the assets that you have the investment assets that you have your income will not come from your own toil your own sweat and 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 labor that you do then just lastly what has been your worst investment ever and uh, conversely what has been your best one ever <laughs> so I'm not going to count that horrible um, policy that I got no, in no, as a 22-year-old as an investment. So we've, we've, we've parked that one. <laughs> I think my probably my worst investment ever was when I was working as a quantitative analyst um, in the industry already. And I got caught or listened to one of our analysts who sold us all on the idea of a particular company at the time. And there's no, there's no need to go into which company no, it tell was. us which company Suffice, that is, please. I don't know. We, oh, no, we're going back to the 1990s. So, <laughs> so, so, um, and I think the the important lesson that I learned there is that I actually did not understand that investment at all. I I bought into his hype. I bought into the story that he told without really understanding the business model of that company, why they would make money, how they would make money and so on. And when the business folded, when the shares tanked, what added insult to injury was that because the, the bank that I was working for at the time was the corporate sponsor of that company, we that, that share was put on the restricted list. We were not even allowed to sell out of it. So in that particular case, I did not only lose my shirt, I lose, my, I lost my pants. What is and my, that? Uh, dimension data, brainware. <laughs> you need to tell us. <laughs> no, dimension data is still around. <laughs> um, I, I, I must remember because I, I, it was out something, but of course it wasn't out insurance or out vest. It was long before that. Out. Um, you should recall it. Outsourcing. 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 Mm. Remember outsourcing? I do. Yes. I do. Yes. I think it was 1998, if my memory serves me correctly. So that was definitely, yeah, by far my worst investment yeah, I ever. Think there are many scars <laughs> from the late 90s. And your best one ever, yeah. which one are you the most proud of? My best one ever for me is not a single investment, but rather the consistency with which I apply my investment plan and strategy. And that's my final word of advice really. I I know that investing sounds like it can be really sexy and fun and full of adrenaline. I'm a firm believer that investments should be boring. So I've got a very specific strategy plan of my contributions that I make on a regular basis into the appropriate accounts. I always prioritize where do I get the best tax efficiency in terms of my retirement contributions, my tax-free investments, and, and do discretionary last. And I religiously stick to that strategy and their plan 
irrespective of market movements. So I ignore the, the gyrations, the up and the down of markets and just say I'm consistently sticking to my strategy. And that's what's allowed me to build wealth over my lifetime. Um, so, yes, I'm afraid I'm a very boring investor. But I do think that because of focusing on the boring, consistent aspect, I'm a very successful investor because of that. Just lastly, and I need to ask you this. You say you're a boring investor, yet you have some crypto, in quotation marks, investments. Uh, how, how do you view crypto and do you see it as, it as an asset class? I am firmly of the opinion that in future it will play an even bigger role than it is now. So in crypto, just like all of my other investments, I've got a regular contribution strategy where I make contributions in order to experience how does this asset, because I don't even want to call it an asset class just yet, but how does this investment asset perform? over time. And here I'm not just talking about returns, I'm talking about its ups and its downs. What causes it to go up? What causes it to go down? And I don't judge or evaluate my investment strategy or the success of my investment strategy on the value of my investments. I evaluate it on the basis of the extent to which I stick to my strategy because I believe the market will give me my results over time if I stick to my strategy. So that's the basis on which I evaluate it. So I do exactly the same with crypto as I do with anything else. I have a regular contribution into that and I have not sold anything in crypto since the day that I started making my first investment into it. Marina, thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing your insights. My pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity, Rake. That was Narina Fisser. She is from ETFSA. Show me the money. That was the Money Web, the A Better Investor podcast with Rake for Kneecap. Thanks for listening. Catch up and listen to all the MoneyWeb podcasts on moneyweb.co.za or the app. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.